All right, hello everybody. This is Social 225, Social Problems. Uh, if my memory serves me correct, this is our, well, this will be our Zoom lecture number three. And I wanna say some things about that, uh, about the third chapter in your Zen and Eisen text. And uh, that third chapter is called World Population and Global Inequality. World Population and Global Inequality. And I wanna say a few things about this. This is a pretty straightforward chapter, but uh, a few clarifications um, and a little, uh, let us say, kind of a, oh, a study guide uh, to understanding this chapter. And again, it's quite readable. And uh, it wants you to mostly understand growing global inequality, inequality mostly measured economically, you see, by incomes and standard of living. You see, poverty is a key here. We'll get more into poverty as the course progresses and so on. But there's growing class inequality, more and more poor people, okay, in the world. That number is horrendous, all right? And sadly, at the same time, and we touched on this, uh, on the, uh, in the chapter on wealth and bias, there's ever greater concentration of wealth. Uh, you know, there's this, you know, elite 1% approximately that just get richer and richer while poverty grows. And what they want you to know is that this is a global phenomenon, global, and it's always been global. Okay, poverty has always been global. And part of the problem, frankly, is a history of capitalist colonialism and imperialism that conquered people around the world, exploited people, uh, transferred huge amounts of value from, from colonies and then poor countries to the rich countries, uh, Western Europe, North America, uh, and so on, a few other places, but those were the dominant industrialized wealthy nations, Europe and the United States. Okay, Europe and the United States conducted uh, versions we could call of colonialism, conquering people, uh, exploiting their resources, forcing them into low wage forms, whether it's slaves or poor wage labor or tenant farmers. Okay, these are all ways to exploit the labor of others, to make labor cheap uh, as a way, of course, to increase uh, profits, cheaper the labor the cheaper the inputs like resources, the greater the profits. And so Americans need to know that the world's been divided into what we might call first world and third world nations, rich and poor. Some people call core and periphery rich and poor. Some people talk about the developed world as opposed to the underdeveloped world and they're linked. And value and wealth has always been transferred uh, from the poor part of the world, the periphery of the world, we could say, to the core or the rich nations. Okay, so poverty has been imposed on the world, frankly, by the history and development of capitalism, uh, global capitalism. Capitalism has been global for quite a long time. There's really no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, of a national economy. That's a figment of somebody's sick imagination. Uh, the economy of the world, the, the economy of the United States, for, for example, has always been linked, always been linked, okay, to uh, economies around the world, to especially to the poor 
less developed or underdeveloped nations of the world. It's always been an exploitative relationship. And you need to understand that. So that's one of the key points that uh, they want you to get uh, uh, under your belt, I want you to understand in this uh, chapter um, on world population and global inequality. All right, now, just a few things to augment this, because it's a very readable chapter. I don't think you'll have a problem with this chapter. Okay, the first thing to say is that part of uh, the problem uh, uh, in terms of inequality in the world is, is driven by population, population growth. Sometimes, often, this is called the demographic model. There have been more and more people uh, inhabiting the earth uh, over the years, okay, and we're pushing, oh, I forget how many billions of people now on this planet, the population has been expanding rapidly, especially for the last two or 300 years, okay, and of course, more people means you've got more people to take care of, more people to feed, more people to clothe, more people to house, and so on, okay. Now, one of the arguments is that uh, the economies of uh, parts of the world, certain nations have not kept up with population increase. And uh, quite often, and this is not a correct model, the demographic model, sometimes it's named the Malthusian model after the first person who argued this in the mid 19th century. Uh, in my mind, a misguided elitist gentleman named Thomas Malthus. Sometimes it's after Malthus, M-A-L-T-H-U-S, uh, after Malthus is called the Malthusian model, the demographic model, we usually use the term demographic model more often. It's just the idea that poverty and inequality is mostly, if not exclusively, the result of population increase. And the idea here is that food and other commodity production just can't keep up with population. Too many people to feed and not enough food or not enough resources. All right, here's a response. Yes, increased populations put greater stress on the ability of economies, whether they're agricultural or industrial, to provide wanted or needed uh, commodities, products for people. You know, oh yes, demography puts greater pressure. But what's often not included here is that quite often the ability to produce food and other resources is also increased even at times exponentially. Okay, and that's the first thing to be said. Here's the other thing, and there's, uh, there's some good books to read. Some of you may be in the food and hunger course of mine this term. Uh, there are uh, 12 myths of hunger. One of those is the demographic model. And what is the response to that? Uh, and a good source, again, is this book called Myths of Poverty, The 12 Myths of Poverty, actually. And it's by a couple of very fine scholars. Uh, and, and the response is, well, okay, so population increase, okay, requires, put some stress on your ability to produce food, for example. But the fact is the world produces a surplus of food. We have plenty of food in the world to feed every human being to provide a decent, nutritious diet for every individual, okay? And hunger is never just the result of population increase. That is ridiculous, 
All right, let me give you a little example. Okay, we had, we have serious hunger in Oregon. Oh, probably not quite eight or nine or 10 years ago, we had one of the highest hunger rates in the United States, right here in Oregon. Hunger rate means people hungry, inadequately fed uh, per thousand, okay? And the rate is a percentage of that. We had one of the highest rates in the, in the country. There was briefly, we were the highest hunger rate in the United States about a decade ago. And we're doing better, okay. But here's the thing. Now, if the demographic model is correct, right, and it simply just says that, uh, well, people are hungry because your society just doesn't produce enough food. Your agricultural system specifically can't produce enough food for people or your food systems can't provide enough food for people, okay? Uh, then what should have been true when we had high rates of hunger in Oregon, there should have been a shortage of food. Should have not been enough food. So if you went off to Safeway or Ross or wherever you shop, uh, there would be shortages of food. There'd be aisles where missing food. Okay, even staples like bread and milk and things like that would be in short supply. Now, I bet you know, if you don't have a memory, you can ask your older friends or your mom and dad, there, was, there has never been a food shortage in Oregon. Not in the, certainly not in the 20th century that I know of, or at least the late 20th century. The only time might have been the Great Depression, but not even likely then, that's back to the 1930s. There has not been a food shortage in Oregon, certainly not in the last decade or so, absolutely not. Okay, and so uh, how is it then that people are hungry when there's no shortage of food, like hungry people in Oregon, okay? Now, here's the response, and here's something's in and ice and want you to understand, okay? Poverty is the basis of hunger, okay? Poverty, making too little money, uh, you know, or not having a job, having inadequate incomes, of course, because in our society, you need money to buy food because most of us don't live on small farms uh, we're not family farmers or around the world like we, uh, they would be called peasants, subsistence farmers. Okay, uh, and most of us are dependent, you see, on purchasing in the marketplace of some kind, like a Safeway or other places, our food, which means we have to have an income. That's kind of simple, isn't it? So if you don't have a job or your job doesn't pay very much, okay, you could have issues of hunger. Right, with you and your family and so on, okay? So uh, inequality, especially measured by things like hunger, because there's inequality all over the world in terms of access to food. Poverty results in many things, but one of the most important things that results from poverty is inadequate food, hunger, okay? So uh, here's the thing. All over the world, many people work and they work hard. They work on plantations, they work some places in sweatshops, uh, they work as poor subsistence uh, peasant farmers as they're usually called. Right? Uh, they work hard, but they don't make enough money to adequately feed themselves and their families. Okay? This is what we call the political economy of hunger, or in this case, just broadly speaking, is the political economy of inequality. 
because poverty is about class inequality. There are people who are exploited and exploited so severely that they often go hungry. They have inadequate access to food, right? Wow, uh -huh. and uh, gets us away from the demographic model as the explanation you see of food or inequality, right? Because it just doesn't hold water. Now that's not to say that democracy isn't a variable that affects food supply, it does, but it is not really the cause of poverty and hunger around the world for reasons I've just suggested and Zinna Nyson would like you to understand that. All right, so other measures of global inequality, well, standard of living, access to food, hunger is one big, big measure of inequality, but there's things like access to healthcare that uh, contributes to global inequality, uh, access even in some places to basic utilities like clean water, okay? Millions of uh, babies and small children and other people die every year from dysentery and typhus, you know, and cholera. And that's mostly, not exclusively, but mostly just from dirty water, unsanitary water, okay? and uh, billions of people do not have ongoing access to safe water around the world, okay? So we got inequality uh, relating to poverty and hunger, inequality related to education. Many people don't have access to schools or their schools are inadequate or the schools only go through some basic education at best uh, and so on. So inequality, to education, inequality to basic utilities like water and proper sanitation. And those can go together, of course, to create problems, as you well know. All right, inadequate to decent housing in many parts of the world. Okay. Um, and lack of, just generally speaking, lack of opportunities even to find a job, to better yourself. Okay, this crushing poverty that affects probably upwards of 2 billion people on this planet. That's really sad. Okay, and, and so on. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, the kind of picture of the world that they want you to understand. Population and global inequality. Okay, and that most of the inequality we know is an issue of political economy. It's about access to jobs. It's about governments actually providing services and supports for their people, okay? And it is a failure, and we can say some more things about this, failure around the world of a policy called neoliberalism. Neo, neo means new, and liberalism. It's a version of liberalism. There are two or three different versions. And this, well, uh, let's put it this way, what neoliberalism means is that capitalists, these big corporations that invest and exploit all over the world should be totally free. Corporations, big capitalists should be able to go anywhere, anytime uh, and do whatever they want on a global scale. Freedom for the capitalist class, the corporate capitalist class to do whatever they want around the world which means they can go all over the world and have no government interfere with them, no government restrict them, okay? And most lots of these governments, especially in poor countries, 
uh, don't really tax them, don't regulate them. Uh, there's no protections for workers, no protections for the environment. Okay, total freedom, total freedom for these corporations to invest and exploit the world to their benefit. Okay, and uh, uh, it's, it's incredible what they pull all over the world. It's not nice. <laughs> these corporations are not nice in terms of what they do to people and also what they do to the environment wherever they go. But the idea in neoliberalism is that when capitalists are free to do whatever they want globally, that will be the engine of prosperity. They will create jobs. They'll create prosperity for everybody. They'll lift the boat, so to speak, as the metaphor goes. They'll lift the boat for everyone. Wherever they go, they're an engine of, of prosperity and wealth, and even in some broad sense, they're the engines of civilization. Okay, God bless them. Okay, well, you can tell I'm a little sarcastic because that's an incredibly uh, <laughs> disgusting argument to make is far from the truth. The, the closer to the truth is that wherever corporations go, they create serious poverty. In many countries, they seriously pollute uh, without restraint. And what they often do, Americans don't realize this, and when these rich corporations go into these poor countries, quite often they can buy governments. We all know that money talks, right? Even in our country, okay, corporations pretty much get their, well, their way. They, they walk into Washington and get what they want. That was part of the discussion in the wealth and bias question that you're working on, I'm sure. Okay. And so these giant corporations can buy governments and get favorable conditions wherever they want to do business and exploit people. They get no taxes, low taxes. Okay. They get all kinds of free resources like uh, uh, free utilities, water, electricity, electricity, roads, sanitation is provided free of charge by a friendly government, friendly quotes around friendly government. Okay. And most importantly, uh, these corporations will influence and sometimes even literally buy governments. So these governments oppose any attempt by workers, okay, whether they're agricultural workers or factory workers in these poor countries, the government guarantees that they will not be allowed to organize. We don't want any unions or labor parties or anything like that. So government oppresses politically workers, protects the interests of the capitalists, because often the people that run these governments get a piece of the action. They'll be stockholders or employees as liaisons or something with these foreign corporations. We usually call these foreign corporations multinational corporations, or for short, MNCs. And they are all over the world. They're powerful. They influence and dominate governments, and they pretty get whatever they want. Now, neoliberalism is this dominant economic ideology that says when these giant corporations are free, okay, unhindered, unobstructed, to go anywhere in the world, do whatever they want, okay, and somehow that's good for everybody. Everybody benefits when we have this global free market and free trade, okay, and they, sometimes they use that awkward French term, global laissez-faire. Okay, which simply means it's from a French 
idea from many years ago that uh, capitalism should be free to do anything, anytime, anywhere, and that somehow uh, in that situation they benefit everyone, provide social benefits writ large, you see, when they are free. Free trade, free markets, that is the concept of neoliberalism, which is a dominant ideology uh, taught in econ courses, taught certainly in business courses, and so on. Uh, which is uh, a bit deceitful, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so this is sort of a thumbnail sketch, a little compliment uh, clarification, you see, uh, for uh, this chapter three on, on population and global inequality. And you can tell uh, implied, and here, of course, strongly implied in this is a critique, essentially, of global capitalism, that most global inequality is not from demographics, it is from a political economy of capitalism. Although, of course, population increase, okay, uh, needs to be worked on too. This planet does have a carrying capacity and we can't exceed it uh, without some disastrous effects. So population does matter, but it's not the major cause of even existing inequalities, especially economic inequalities around the world. That's the way to kind of think about this and put it together. But think about global inequality, global inequality, and it's getting worse, not, met, not better uh, as we get well into the 21st century. Okay, and I've got uh, a question and answer connection there on your Canvas page. Okay, uh, something not clear, uh, please ask me questions. I do check it daily and I'll get back to you. And please remember, I'm, I'm learning Canvas with you. Uh, so be patient if a few mistakes are made or whatever as we go along, I think we'll all get better as, as we do this more and more. Okay, so have a great day and uh, I'll connect you again with some kind of short lecture to help you understand the material uh, in the near future do uh, watch your canvas, um, probably check every day is a good thing to do, okay? Have a good one, it's raining outdoors. Uh, me and Bonnie can't go for a walk when it rains this hard, you know, and we sit here and we stare at each other. Bonnie's my little scotty dog, some of you may have seen us walking around. All right, have a good one, I'll, I'll see you soon. <laughs>